Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Douglas, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And um, I know you're talking in regards to the Seniors for Social Action Ontario. And if you can just provide a little bit of background information about the organization and yourself before we get started. Thank you. Yes, uh, sure, Wendy. Um, uh, Seniors for Social Action Ontario is a group that formed in the springtime in response to what we were seeing happening um, in the COVID epidemic, um, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, people living in long-term care facilities and uh, just sort of tracking the tragedy as it was unfolding. we're uh, uh, a group of people that are basically seniors ourselves. We come from a variety of different backgrounds, uh, social policy, law, social activism, uh, systems advocacy, clinical work, post-secondary education. Um, we also have family members of, uh, of those that have um, uh, lived and died in these long-term care homes as well. So we came together in in the spring just to uh, be able to start to um, really advocate for reform and serious reform and changes to what's happening for elder care in this province, which we can talk about, uh, I'm sure, during this interview. My background is just that um, I spent 40 years Uh, supporting people who have an intellectual disability. Um, I was uh, um, providing support. I was a community developer. I was an advocate. I was an organizer. I was um, a manager of an agency. And for the last 20 years, I've been consulting with uh, disability organizations uh, across the country, but mostly in Ontario and British Columbia. And when um, uh, I heard about Seniors for Social Action, this group getting together, and I knew some of the uh, uh, primary uh, people. I just thought, I, I just had to do something, that you had to take action around this. There was so much happening, and there was uh, and there was no one really speaking about the need to, re- to seriously reform. I don't mean tidy up the system. I mm-hmm. mean change, reform it significantly. And so that's what brought me into this. And... Uh, um, it's been six or seven months of trying to get the attention of decision makers to, to do what I think every Ontario citizen wants is a much better elder care system for everybody. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And with your um, organization, the Seniors for Social Action Ontario, there's three main I guess, key aspects or key points that you guys are really championing for in terms of the change. And um, one of them is the the reliance of long-term care facilities to address the aging and disability aspect. And if you can just be able to talk on that, um, just to be able to give more of a background on that. Yeah, so... um this is a this is a really in, interesting point, and it's and it's um, sometimes hard for people to understand this because um, long term care facilities are institutions by any other name. I mean, once mm-hmm. you start congregating um, 
um, hundreds of people together in the same building or, or, or in that format, you know, congregating people who are not, to be honest, not highly valued in our society or mm -hmm. seniors need a lot of support, not, not highly valued. And by the way, I should also say that um, there's a significant population in long-term care facilities who aren't elderly. Yep. They're actually young and they're disabled. Yep. And somehow they found their way in there as well because they couldn't locate viable alternatives to be supported in their neighborhood and their community. So, so your question about our, our first goal is, is to really look at this whole thing about having these long-term care facilities, these institutions. Um, so we know that what happens in institutions is that people's personality begins to disappear. Once you live with 300 other people, your personality begins to disappear. You get to be separated from friends, family, and community. You get to be excluded from events. Um, you get to be controlled by other people. I don't mean sort of malevolently. I, I mean, just when you have a couple of hundred people living together, you're going to be controlled. You yeah. give yourself over the routines and rhythms of the institution. So the routines and rhythms that were in your personal life, uh, simply get uh, waylaid in favor of institutional routines and rhythms. When you eat, where you go, when you sleep. That's right. Um, age, it's, it's institutional life uh, has its costs. And I would add to that, that um, institutions have been rejected by most every other vulnerable group in our society. For example, we don't have orphanages for children anymore. Yeah. We don't have homes for special care for significantly disabled children who used to be placed in these awful places. We don't have asylums for those who have mental health difficulties. We don't have those large congregate institutions for those who have an intellectual or developmental disability anymore. We closed them all. Last one mm -hmm. was closed in 2009. We don't, have, we don't have residential schools for Indigenous youth anymore. We've realized that gathering up, um, congregating, separating, and excluding people from life, the mainstream of neighborhood and community life, regardless of your ability, regardless of your health condition, doing that has a high cost to both community and to the person. You lose your individuality and you become routinized and what they call institutionalized. And then you, then what happens, what begins to happen is you become very vulnerable to things like a pandemic, let's say. 1,900 people dead in this province, preventable dead in the province because of the, frankly, the institutional model. A little bit later, we can talk about alternatives to that, yes. such as small homes. There seems to be no deaths in this province related to the pandemic. 1,900 deaths. I think the other thing, Wendy, is, is just that um, something's happening in Ontario that's, I think, a little bit unique in Canada and, and, and certainly unique in Ontario, is that 60% of the long-term care facilities are controlled and operated by the for-profit industry. The three primary ones, Rivera, Chartwell, and um, Extended Care, are led by three former premiers of this province, Bill Davis, Mike Harris, and Ernie Eves. Mm -hmm. 
the profit margin in human service in the field of care, we believe, is fundamentally incompatible. Because when you have profit-seeking motives, it will inevitably look for what they call cheaper inputs. And some of the most important inputs in long-term care could be, for example, what you eat. Yes. Who eats you? What have we seen happen in these places? We've seen this domination of low-wage part-time workforce that even the Conservative Policy Institute, the C.D. Howe Institute said, was the petri dish for the infection spread. Profit in care in the institutional model is doubly problematic, right? Definitely. Not only do we face the associated with institutional living, standardization, the routinization, the loss of personality and control, the loss of people coming even to see you. We couple that with the profit motive that is so strong in these institutional models, and we begin to see why we're in such terrible, terrible shape. Definitely, because this, this, this is your second point, right? For, uh, I was going for your group, is that correct? Like in terms of the, taking the for-profit out of the long-term care. Yes, the for the for-profit, um, the the for-profit um, uh, uh, motive ha has been extremely troubling in this field, and it has uh, garnered um, a lawful awful lot of attention. And part of that attention is that it controls what's going on in the long-term care system in this province. So nonprofits and municipalities have a smaller uh, share right now, but we believe that it will be really important to take the profit motive out of care. We've seen that it's problematic. It has failed. Most of the deaths occurred, well, they, they actually occurred to be honest, they, they've occurred in nonprofit and in the profit um, institutions, long-term care facilities. Mm -hmm. But in the in the um, the extent of the infection and the death rate of the infection is much more pronounced in the for-profit sector. Yes. So just using the simple data the for-profit sector failed miserably in protecting people from the pandemic. This was all um, preventable if people had had their, um, their uh, pandemic virus plans in place, yeah. if they uh, had um, um, uh, their dry runs, if they had all their PPEs in place, which many, I've talked to several of the homes that I'm familiar with, municipal homes, nonprofit homes, and they've, uh, they've, they've had things in place. They were waiting for this. Mm -hmm. But it's clear to me that the profit sector, um, I mean, just the data says that it failed. You don't, have to, you don't have to have opinions about this. Just look at the data and it fails. So, so the, the other thing I, I should go back to say, Wendy, about this, about our institutional model, not just the profit, mm -hmm. nonprofit debate now that's raging, but the, 
the institutional model. So the last couple of weeks, there's been a few studies that have come out. Um, people are beginning to say, no, 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 I don't want to go into the, okay. to the uh, nursing home. I hesitate to call it nursing home, nursing facility, long-term care yes. facility. Um, they, they, they don't want to go there. We, we, have, we have data on some, on some uh, uh, polling that's been taken. 91% of Ontarians say they know they don't want to go to a nursing home. What they want to do is stay at home with a good home care system. Yes. You know, 0%, 0% wants to go to a nursing home. Now, the issue, of course, is people are reacting People are reacting to the to the crisis right now, of course. But all my friends that I talk to, just talk an anecdotally to the people that you know, your neighbors and friends, and say, "Are you, okay, are you looking forward to the nursing home?" Yeah. And people will generally about that. They they'll say, "Oh no 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 no, nobody wants to go." And they, and we talk about it regrettably when somebody has to go because people are, are usually uh, in in no other position. There's no other alternative. They can't find any. They're at their end of the rope in terms of what they can physically do to care for somebody who needs some help physically or because of dementia or frankly because of incontinence. Yes. Then people become very, very um, concerned. And because our home care system is not very robust at all, not very robust, I would emphasize, it forces people into the institutional model that's primarily controlled by the profit-making industry. Mm. So um, people, Ontario citizens are saying they want to have a robust home care system. And so why does government persist with last month? What was it? The announcement of 5,000 new beds to be bid on right now. Yes. A promise of 25,000 more bids and more beds on top of the 78,000 that they already have that are full with lots of people waiting in wings of hospitals for their place, really what they're waiting for is someone to die That's in a long-term right. care facility so they can. We could, uh, uh, we could easily, and depending what studies you're reading on this, but easily, if we had the most robust home care system, taking the caps off the hours, allowing people to have much more home support, you could easily take 15 to 20% of those 78,000 people out of the current long-term care placements, if loved ones had opportunity and resources, you would incentivize their interest, provide them good support, and allow people to sidestep the institutional model. So, so it's incredible that Ontario citizens are telling the government what they want. Government's just not budging. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I definitely agree. Because I know for my situation, if there were the community supports available, my loved one wouldn't, didn't, would not have had the need to have gone into long term care. And as you said, to be able to provide that independence, because once they went into long term care, they're a much younger person, they're an individual that is of special needs, they lost, you know, their identity. I really had to champion for them to be able to still be included into community. And gratefully so, I have been able to take them out of that. But that was a long eight years 
of them being in that type of living environment. And not everybody is going to be able to have that opportunity or that chance to be able to fight, to be able to challenge, to be able to demand that they still be part of the community that they live in, as opposed to kind of shut it away in long-term care and then being told you're taking a bed away from somebody that needs it in the community because they are not their typical individual that would be living in long-term care. And I guess that's what your um, your organization is indicating in terms of the real reallocation of funding for long-term care. And then, of course, as well to make sure that the inspection process is a lot more harder to, uh, to well, account, right? Yes. I mean, this whole uh, topic of accountability, Wendy, I mean, um, I dare anyone to tell me where all the money goes that's given to the profits. Yeah. <laughs> I dare anybody to it like, like that. I mean, the profits have their hand out really, um, really large right now, looking for more money for all the uh, the understaffing that they that they have, and for and for um, uh, redesigning some of their facilities. And, and I'm wondering where did the money go that they've had before, and and how come they can give out 1.75 billion dollars in dividends to shareholders? What what about that money? Nonprofits don't have that money. They put their money back into care, so it, it it's it's a it's a it's a fundamental the accountability of money, but the accountability also of what's going on in facilities, is the mandate of the inspection branch, of uh, the Ministry of Health and Long Term Care, and for the longest time, um, uh, the 620 I think it's 24 or 620 yeah. long term care facilities in this province. They're required to have a comprehensive inspection every year, which, you know, puts the provincial standards against what's going on and un underscores when, when people are understaffed or they don't have the right number of nurses on, on in the facility. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, more regularly than, than you would think when people are understaffed and don't have the complement that they're supposed to have. And uh, the inspection branch, the director, has the option of uh, giving uh, directives, um, orders in, in this regard. And uh, however, there's been a lot of pushback from the profit industry not to have inspections. So I can tell you that about four years ago, every, every nursing home in the province was inspected, had a comprehensive inspection. But last year, 2019, of the 627 long-term care facilities, only nine received a comprehensive inspection. So the uh, profit uh, industry in long-term care in this province um, won. They won. Yeah. They asked no, these inspect. They didn't want these inspections, and they and they got no inspections. And this is what bothers us terribly: is that there is something going on between the current government and the pro and the profit long-term care system that needs to be explored much more deeply. And it's really, really problematic. Um, I mean, you know, for example, when an inspector goes into a home and he sees that this is significantly understaffed, the first thing he should do is issue a cease admissions yeah. order. They don't even do that right now. No. It's, 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 
it's it's fundamentally a flawed system what we're seeing right now. And of course, uh, I, I think you know this, Wendy, and a lot of your listeners will know this, but this is not new to people. <laughs> I think there's something like uh, 21 reports over the last 35 years that have brought forth these concerns in in all kinds of different ways. It's this is not new. People pe people know this. We didn't need, or at least a lot of people didn't need the Canadian Army to tell us what was wrong mm -hmm. with long term in this province. They they of course did in Technicolor because they had to respond to the abandonment and abuse and neglect and starvation yes. and nutrition that was affecting people. So. So the Canadian Army got that credibility, got that stage for a short period of time. But even uh, immediately, our government comes out, Doug Ford comes out and starts saying, we're going to build, his, his idea of innovation is building new beds faster, instead of us saying, no, this is not what Ontario citizens are asking for. We're asking for a robust home care system. We're asking for, quite frankly, alternatives to institutionalization. Yeah. Why can't we have uh, supported independent living models like people with significant disabilities have, both those with physical disabilities mm -hmm. and have significant intellectual disabilities? Yes. We have supported living programs all across this province, all across this country that are being made use of by people with physical and intellectual disabilities. Um, so supported independent living is one option. Um, the other option that I think is interesting to consider if we're looking at alternatives, because if we're going to stop institutionalizing people, what do we want to see in place? Yes. There's supported living options are already been running for 40 years in this province. So let's take a look there. Second thing I, I, I would, I, I would uh, point people towards is is, is, is different types of approaches, such as Newfoundland and Labrador have the uh, paid um, uh, home caregiver program where, where a family member can be compensated for caring for another family member who's, who's uh, elderly in need of support or disabled. Um, so why can't we look at something like that? And uh, physically disabled adults in, in, in Ontario have uh, direct funding where they can actually access direct funding themselves to be able to right. the people that they want to be able to support themselves. And if they have some family members assisting them because maybe there's some de dementia involved, family members can support that person in their decision making about how direct funding can be used. Is, with that direct funding, that follows the person, right, throughout the province, not the necessarily the agency where that would be attached to. Correct. So direct funding, um, um, we've often referred to this as individual funding or direct funding, um, is a way of flowing resources directly to the person affected so they can have control over how those resources are spent. And it could be hiring people, uh, directing them. Um, they're accountable for, for managing the resources. But you know, um, uh, so, so you can do it yourself. You can do it with the help of people. Or quite frankly, if you get innovative about this, you might be able to direct those resources to your church. And your church does the administration and helps you a bit. 
you do the hiring of somebody you know and trust. There's many innovative ways you can do this. And, and what, I'm, what we're talking about right now, Wendy, this direct funding, this has been going on since 1983 in, in the field of uh, developmental disability. Yes. There were yeah. programs. Okay. One was called Special Services at Home. Another mm -hmm. was called Support for Adults. So for 40, almost 40 years, we have experience with direct funding. It's also been happening for people with um, physical disabilities, mm -hmm. adult physical disabilities um, for almost as long. And so we know that we can empower people by using those kinds of resources that don't have to be sent to the profit system or even the nonprofit system can be sent. It's another option to be invested directly in the person who needs it. And they with enough, uh, and they, if, if they need help with their um, managing this can enlist their uh, family members and loved ones to, uh, yeah. to help with this. So, um, so, and the other thing is um, that um, in the field of disability, you'll also see small homes mm -hmm. that have, in the field of disability, 5,000 people came out of these large congregate institutions that were scattered around Ontario between about 1984 and 2009, about a 25-year period. And um, as a result of that, many people found themselves in these small homes on neighbor in neighborhoods on ordinary streets in the community and and many of the people that came out of the institutions were quite significantly disabled needed a lot of assistance um, physically intellectually and some health wise and the small homes simply provided a opportunity for people to still connect to community quite strongly for their personality to be present and seen and be a driving force, for them to have much more, instead of the assembly line care of 200 people living together in an institution, their individual routines and rhythms of the day could be um, uh, supported. Uh, so people, all the people living in the, if there was four or five or six people living in a small home, they didn't have to all do the same thing. Yeah. They had uh, good amounts of staffing. It was person directed, mm -hmm. so direct person. So the so the empowerment of uh, staff to recognize that this is about um, supporting the autonomy of this person. So getting to understand the person, getting to um, assist the person to express their preferences, regardless of level of disability, regardless of dementia, regardless of health condition. We all have preferences. Yeah. So in a small home model, what you, the staff are empowered to do is to animate those preferences. And that would be a very good model because the way that it is now set up, it's all task oriented. And as you said, you lose individuality. So it's all what the group has to get done. You have to get up at eight o'clock and you have, you know, support workers coming in and making sure that you're, up and ready and dressed in six minutes to get to have dining because staffing for dining in the um, in that area is only there for an allotted amount of time before they have to do their other task and move forward and have the steps keep going. So I guess what you're saying as well is that there would have to be some sort of a standard, some sort of a model um, to say this is how 
long-term care should change going forward, as well as to um, make sure that the community support model is just as robust as the long-term care model, not looked at in different silos, but looked at together to provide the uh, support for the employees that are working in that model so they don't have to be working two, three, maybe four jobs just to have ends meet because that's another aspect of it is not recognizing or valuing the work that's being done for those particular individuals as well. Yes, absolutely. This needs to be a, a, a holistic system of elder care in Ontario that understands it's better and cheaper to support people to live in their home. If we're going to spend upwards of $175, $200 a day per bed in our institutional model, then why can't we take a decent percentage of that and redirect that to a more robust home care system where uh, people can access um, uh, more hours of support? I mean, right now in Ontario, um, and I have personal experience with this, as, I, as, as a lot of people yeah. too that are listening to this podcast. So this isn't theoretical to me. I mean, right now, if you're in uh, um, palliative care and you're going to get the maximum number of hours, and you've chosen to pass away at home, for example, yeah. then our home care system will start giving you a few more hours than you currently would have gotten. But the hours prior to that, you might be getting one hour a day or two hours a day, yeah. which is ridiculous for some people. It's And it's not great. You can't keep a workforce. No. And I can tell you for, in my situation, um, when that the home care system was unable to send any PSWs, they could not find anybody that would assist this person to die at home. And so that was left to the family. They had approved the hours, but did not have any workforce that was available. And this is 30 minutes outside of our nation's capital. Yes. So this, the home care system is, is, is in disarray. And uh, recently, this past week, I, I read a, a report that, that was confirming the fact that uh, Seniors did not want to go, go into a, an institution, but it was also confirming the fact that 400,000 recipients of home care needed more support than they were getting. <laughs> they weren't getting what they needed. Either workers don't show up, workers aren't available, the hours aren't adequate, and yet 91% are saying right now we want a more robust home care system. It's, it's, it's just, it's just um, unconscionable that we've got the system we've got with people saying what they're saying uh, about 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 what, what what we need to put in place which is which is which is not new we, we know what the problem is we know how to solve it there is no there doesn't seem to be the political will to do anything about this at this time i guess what would be a better model so i guess um talking about i guess the smaller facilities uh, more home and of course the um, funding following the person and not the institution. So if you yeah, could... I, I think I think Wendy, there's there has to be a range of alternatives. I, I think institutional life, nobody is saying they want that. Nobody wants that except maybe the profit system and this government. But but 
everybody I talk to says, no, they want something else. They want to, yeah. they want to, want to be home. So, so one thing is a robust uh, home care program, but there are always, uh, there, there, there is a need for people to have access to other supported living models. And especially if we're going to help some people um, um, maybe leave the institutional model. And so I think by redirecting funding, we can, uh, we can uh, um, have a, a support, well, I'm calling it supported living. And, it's, and it simply means that we can have homes in the community that could, could be uh, rented, renovated, purchased, uniquely designed, because people may, may have mobility issues, of course. And so you can have uh, homes and it could be either uh, developed for the, by the municipal or the nonprofit sector, these homes on streets, in neighborhoods, in community, in proximity to each other, yeah. and um, have a small number of people living together uh, where their personalities recognized, their routines and rhythms are recognized, um, um, where staff don't have to wear uniforms, they can just yeah. be people that are people. We don't have to label people. One of the things we've done, of course, is we've medicalized the elderly. And so all of a sudden, personal support workers, PSWs, are wearing these uh, uniforms when they come to work where, I mean, in the field of, of disability, none of that, that doesn't happen. People wear their ordinary clothes. Um, so we don't want to stigmatize and label people. We want people simply to, to, to um, age where they feel most comfortable, yeah. provide support, and then these homes, you know, most likely they have to be, um, you know, accessible. They might need specialized support that would come in. So, for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite familiar in, in my town here with a, a woman who uh, is, uh, um, has sort of an early onset dementia, needs a lot of help. But she also has a, a nurse who visits, a physio that visits, an occupational therapist who visits, uh, somebody that helps if she has difficulty swallowing. Um, and so you can arrange for these specialized services. They don't have to live in the home. They can right. visit because you don't need this service all the time. Yeah. And so we had more homes located in the community, small homes. And frankly, people could get quite inventive about this. I mean, as people think about and think and plan for their future getting older, they might be able to actually own a home that's shared with one or two other people. I mean, you can get into shared living models, yes. supported living, small homes, shared living models, um, direct funding, robust home care. All of this conspires to create an alternative to the institutional model, which we've just grown up with. and and. And part of this problem is, um, well, there's a couple of problems that are associated with it besides the profit element. One is become culturally normative yeah. to pass people on to the institution. Mm -hmm. It's regrettable, and people say it with a tinge of regret. My mother, my father, my brother, my, yeah. my grandmother had to go to the nursing home. It's almost, there's a tinge of regret when you talk to people about this. It was like, They'd done everything they can possibly do, and we had no other choice. We had no other option, and and, and this is what's happened. And so, so there's this there's this regret that that that's there. And and the other thing that I think um, touches uh, 
uh, people quite quite deeply is um, we live in a culture that's highly that highly values individualism and independence. And I have lived in cultures. I lived overseas for four years in, 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 in a culture where they would, they would be scratching their heads about how we treat our seniors, about our old, old, older people. They simply would not understand why we put them in those big boxes o- over there. Yeah. Um, so we have a culture where we don't want to bother our children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the nursing home. We have a culture where we're so busy we don't have time for each other. We have a culture that's making people have, you know, um, all kinds of, you know, part-time jobs and two working incomes and all this stuff that's conspiring to take us away from each other, to make us cogs in this big production machine of, of money and life and things. And probably the most valuable thing we can do the most valuable thing we can do is support a family member who's a bit vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, 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 and, 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 and so if, if I can, if I can join that comment up with some um, sort of economic and social policy, yes. live in an individualized culture. And I don't expect we can change that this week, but if we live in that kind of a culture, then why don't we incentivize people yeah. to take, of their loved one, you know, with whether it's whether it's simple like time off work, or is it's more com- com- a bit more complex like Newfoundland Labradors pay the um, the uh, the um, home caregiver program that they have, which could be looked at, and and just just to be more um, uh, responsive to the fact that um, that uh, incentivizing family and loved ones to care for people is a noble thing to do. It is, it is so economically feasible. We have social policy that, that talks about this. And we could even establish, if you wanted to sort of blue sky some ideas, you could establish a refundable tax credit system that verifies somebody who has a, who's older, let's say with dementia or, or conditions that require support. Yeah. You could verify that. My goodness, we, we do all kinds of things uh, with the signature of of uh, somebody who signs your passport or whatever. You know, we can we we can verify these things in many different ways. We could establish a, a refundable tax credit system that would incentivize people to also support their loved one, and not jeopardize their own need to 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 live and and have income and raise a family and and all the, all the all the rest of those things that people do. I so. And, and like in, a, in a other cultures, though, where there's a bit more of a, a um, social background, a social sen- a sense of social responsibility, they come up with other models. I mean, in Sweden now, you'll begin to see intergenerational homes yes. being established. So where there might be a, an old, you know, older people in a home with much younger people and middle-aged people. And it's just a way to understand that it, it, it's not all about productivity and competition and this myth of beauty and this individualism and this search for wealth. It, it, it's also about patience and tolerance and understanding and diversity and helping each other. That's what this is about. And that's what needs to be incentivized. And 
and, and we're just being swamped with all of these other uh, economic, uh, economic and competitive values that um, tend to rule a society um, at the risk of not supporting each other, quite frankly. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I would definitely agree. And uh, a lot of what you said is exactly what I definitely experienced uh, supporting my uh, family member uh, during the uh, the last eight years in terms of, you know, making work more accommodating to uh, to a caregiver, to have the community supports that are there because currently it's not there, which is why they are indicating to, unfortunately, I'll use the word dumping, um, individuals into long-term care because that's seen as that will resolve the issue. It's just that they're not willing to come up with a, a plan uh, to come up with something that is feasible that can still have someone, if they can, still be able and to be active within the community and to have a balanced approach because some of those um, resolutions are quite severe for family members that there wasn't anything in the community to be able to assist because they ended up finding it uh, that much more challenging in long-term care. Because I know for myself, I was uh, classified as having caregiver burnout for, you know, my loved one being in long-term care as opposed to if they were at home. Yes, yes. I mean, Wendy, that, that story has to be a common story in this field with hundreds of thousands of people. Um, now beginning you know thinking about supporting someone in their family who's vulnerable and if there isn't anything out there we take we, we take what is available and then live with ourselves we almost have to rationalize the choice that we've made in terms of placing our grandparents in a yeah. in a nursing home for example you know we have to live with ourselves e even though it's we even though we know in our, in our back in the, in the back of our mind maybe there could be something better but when we can't sort of even imagine that because we've been caring for somebody for a while, we can't imagine what could be there, let alone have the strength to change a provincial system. Oh my God. It's, it becomes extremely difficult. And then, and then people of course have to, uh, you know, justify why we need it. And, and, and the reason people need it is because there's nothing else there. And that's yes. a hard to understand that vicious cycle of, it's not there, so I take this, I rationalize it, therefore I need it. Yep. And, and quite frankly, the other thing that, that happens, and this happens everywhere in, uh, not just in elder care, but, but the responses that we've made to people in social service, after a while, they become the, the, the human need. So someone will say, my grandmother needs a nursing home. In fact, nobody needs a nursing home. What you need is a good place to live. And then you could ask somebody, well, how many, how many options could you consider? How many options do you consider about a good place to live? Okay, let's put nursing home out there. What else? Exactly. And people think, break through this, uh, this, this, this mental prison that's been created for us because we've only had certain responses to look at. And then we create, and then we connect that response, nursing home, with need. It's a false need because you don't need a nursing home, but we've created that false connection that yeah. you need a nursing home, or whatever it might be. You know? yeah. So I, I, we really do have to when we do our planning, and that's the other thing about I do I do think 
I do think it would be very helpful for, for, for some families to have access to somebody, um, maybe it's from the healthcare system, somebody who's trained differently, who can help people think differently about how to support their vulnerable family member. Because, because we come from a variety of backgrounds. We're, we're, we're construction workers and we're builders and we're in, in inventors of something and, 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 we're, and we're retail workers and we're um, school teachers and nurses. And, we're, and, and we don't all have the imagination to think about how this could be done differently. And if there was somebody who could independently sit with families when they're in a situation of wondering what to, how they're gonna support this vulnerable member, whether it be a person with a disability or whether it be an older grandparent or parent, and then begin to, to think with a wide angle lens, what is possible for us here? What resources are at our disposal? What could we access for the government system? What resources do we have? What about our community? What about our neighbors and friends? What about our other family members? Could we think about this in an entirely different way? Yeah. And if we do that, I, I have enormous uh, faith in citizens to come up with creative ways of doing what's right for people. And in, in, in times past, there was just no options, no one to help, and people did what they could do. My grandmother, my grandmother had um, MS, and for lack of a wheelchair, she spent 20 years in a long-term care facility. And this was a long time ago. But what she needed was a wheelchair in an accessible house. And because that wasn't available, the next 20 years up until her death, was spent in a long-term care home. So that's, we, we could be thinking with people so differently because of course people are restricted in thinking about this. You, you and I probably think about it more than most people. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we need that. Maybe we need that element in a reformed system, someone who can help independently with planning and facilitating what can happen new and different. Definitely. I totally agree with that. And as well with the, I guess, now how do we then get the government to listen? And how do we get the government to start implementing some of these plans, some of these outlooks, start looking at some of these things? How do we as individuals then start championing our local politicians to, to get, you know, things changed and, and actionable changes that we can actually see in our lifetime? Yes. So, Wendy, I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100% on this. The power is with the citizens of Ontario. If this government will not listen, I will tell people today, um, when, as, as, as we're taping this, I can tell people today, and I'm politically uh, uh, um, um, nonpartisan. Yeah. Um, I am. But I can tell you today that we have been speaking with the political parties and the one that's listening right now is, is the uh, New Democratic Party, which is the official opposition to the Conservatives. Last Friday launched their long-term care, home care plan, the plan for elder care in this province. And I must say, I was very suspicious when I heard about the plan coming forward. And of course we know politicians and plans and mm -hmm. election promises and all that stuff. 
And I have talked to, I have talked to them. I have heard them speak about this. I have read the plan. This is one of the best plans that I've seen uh, come out about long-term care in this province. And I would encourage people to take a look at this plan. Not that the NDP, um, it, it's, the, it's the final answer, but what we have right now in the political arena is finally some party that's listening and saying, okay, we can make a robust home care system. We can take profit out of care. We can have small homes in the community. We can have an inspection branch with teeth that can do something when things are problematic. That's what this plan talks about. So an election promise, maybe, but at this point in time, is what I'm seeing as the first sign of listening to the over 90% of Ontarians that are saying this. Yes. So in order to happen the people listening to this podcast have to stop after this is over and they have to spend the next 10 or 15 minutes writing a letter to their MPP they have to become politically active and they have to say I want to be in place what the NDP's plan is saying or I want to I they have to say I want in place a robust home care system that will allow me to age in place in my home where I want to be or I need to say in this letter to my MPP that we have to stop institutionalizing people because we only now institutionalize prisoners and senior citizens. Yep. The power is with the people today. No government, I've said there was a 20, was there 21 reports over 35 years. No government has changed the system. So it's not just the conservatives, although they seem to be in bed deeply with the uh, private for profit system. The Liberals didn't change it either. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have a, a voice from the citizens of Ontario. And that doesn't happen unless we spend our 10 or 15 minutes, and that's all it takes on your computer to send a letter to your MPP and then to keep doing that, to keep being active. This is a multi-billion dollar system that is not meeting the needs of almost anyone. Of course, some people will say they're satisfied. That always happens. Yes. Happened in the institutions for those with an intellectual disability when some families members sued the government to keep them open because they wanted their child to stay there. Yeah. But we know en masse, people want to change here in Ontario. And it's not going to happen unless the citizens voice their opinion to their members of elected parliament again and again and again up until up until this coming election. So I think that's a very important thing to do is to become, you don't have to become a, a, a marching, card-carrying, placard-waving yes. uh, person, just a citizen who cares and who's seen the tragic results of a terrible long-term care and home care system in this province. And No, absolutely, because as well, there's a lot of other organizations that are rising up to say, change needs to come. We cannot have this here in Canada, in this particular province of Ontario. And would you say another step would be as well to, to, to write to their uh, member of the federal government as well to be able to 
elicit that change as well and to hold the provinces accountable for the changes that should be coming as well? Geez, Wendy, I, I, I think uh, I, you're absolutely right. The, I think every listener should have their member of provincial parliament and their member of federal parliament's phone number on speed dial, and they should have their address in their contacts yeah. list, and they should be contacting them both for, for similar but different reasons. At the national level, for example, why aren't there, if there's transfer payment dollars that come from the federal government to the provincial government, why can't we have standards for the provision of elder care in this country? And these will be minimum standards, but right now we have no standards yes. about this. Or why couldn't have a refundable tax credit program that allows people to take care of their family member who's vulnerable and to, and to not lose income, for example, for doing something like that. Why couldn't we invent that? So I think that um, I think that the citizens of Ontario need to be um, active and in contact with both the, at the federal level and at the provincial level, your member of provincial parliament. And if you've never, your member of parliament, mm. federal or provincial. And so if you've never done that before, it's quite simple. Just Google their name, find out their address and write a quick letter to them. Start that dialogue with them this afternoon. Yes, absolutely. I definitely 100% agree. And I know that your um, organization has been as well. You've sent a, a letter into the commission that's being done here in Ontario for what should be as changes. Can you just speak a little bit to that? Yes, I mean, it, I think people uh, may know that the, uh, the Ford government has set up an ind independent commission to look at the tragedy in Ontario, uh, what happened, what, what they could do about it. They have wide ranging mandate, should they so wish. They can make recommendations on the future of elder care in this province. Now, I think we're, 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 we're not holding our breath about this, mm -hmm. uh, but if you, uh, you know, some of us read the transcripts that are coming out from this, we're finding out that, that it's, it's, it's as bad as we thought. Uh, the inspection branch was in front of the independent commission last week. And they were bringing forth um, the, the, what's actually going on in the inspections of the home, which is extremely problematic. It would, it would raise the hair in the back of your neck to read the, some of the transcripts here. But we have to make our, ourselves use the uh, vehicles that are available to us to make some headway. And so... Seniors for Social Action has put a brief into the Independent Commission. We put a brief into the Ombudsman, asked him to investigate um, various things. We've put a brief into the provincial government in the pre-budget consultation process. So we are extremely active in putting forth these positions of the need for reform, the need for um, uh, to, to stop institutionalizing the senior seniors, the need to develop alternatives to the institutions, which we've spoken about today somewhat, the need for robust home care, the need for an inspection branch with teeth that they can do something about when things are problematic. And so, and this is what, we, and, and, and I, I also want to say to, to remove profit from care. This is so problematic, so problematic. So, so I think there's all of these avenues available to any citizen. You can do this. You can Google the independent commission, get their, get their contact details, 
and send your opinion into them. They shouldn't just be interviewing. They have the mandate to, to, to allow for public presentations. Whether they exercise that mandate, we don't know whether they will or not. Right now, they're listening to the people inside the government. So we can send our briefs into them. And if you want, if you're concerned about things, into the, into the ombudsman's office. And even, I'll tell you right now, on, on, on the docket in the, in, the, in the provincial legislature floor today, is a private member's bill looking for a, to establish a, se a, a senior's advocate office who can investigate things on behalf of seniors. This is a private member's bill that's coming forth that's being debated right now. So today, for example, I just took my pen and I wrote, a, or I should say my computer, <laughs> and wrote a letter uh, to my MPP, my member of provincial parliament, asking him to support Bill 196, the um, establishment of a senior's advocate office in this province. Everybody can do this. Thank you so much, uh, Doug. I really do appreciate your time and for you coming on and speaking about your organization. So um, hopefully people will take that information and go with that and move forward to um, affect some change within this province. So again, thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Wendy. You're welcome. <laughs>